I saw uh, a video, I was looking this week, I couldn't find the exact one, but it turns out there's a whole lot of them now, but a video a couple years ago, uh, now that drones are so common, right, really nice drones, you know what I'm talking about, that can take video and fly all over, and this one particular video uh, was kind of frightening, to be honest, it was, a, it was a gentleman with his family at the beach, and he's standing on the beach taking drone footage of his wife and I think it was two or three kids out in the ocean. And I think it was somewhere like Gulf of Mexico, maybe the Caribbean. Really, really clear water. Really pretty beach. Not a lot of people around. And so out in the water, it's just his family and the drones flying overhead. And he's kind of getting footage of them playing in the water. But they're probably like 75 yards out or so. And as he's flying this drone over, he's looking at his little thing. And he realizes there's a giant shark like right behind where his family is playing together. Like a big shark, like a great white, big, big shark right behind them. And he's on the beach looking at it on his thing and looking out there and seeing them. And he's trying to communicate to his wife to get into the shore like right now. Like come, come here now, but not say it in a way that he freaks his young, small children out. And so he's trying to communicate to her from... And she can't really hear him, and he's going, no, you need to come in now. I mean, long story short, they're all fine. They, they all get in, and they're okay. There's no, this is, this is not, the, not the Jaws movie. But uh, they do all get in, right? They get in and okay. But I was thinking about what that would be like to be the person standing on the shore, looking out there with the people that you love the very most, and you see this giant uh, predator right behind them that could literally end all of them in, in one bite and seeing that and knowing it and then trying to communicate to them, trying to communicate them to get back to safety and to come back in that way. And I was thinking about how you would feel in that situation, thinking about what that must have been like. And the reason I was thinking about it is because I think in some ways that's what Jesus is doing in our text. He's talking to people and he starts to talk about the seriousness of sin and he starts to talk about the seriousness of pursuing holiness He starts to talk about temptation and hell. And he's saying these things and he's going to use very stark language. He's going to say some things that are really harsh when you read it. Like, whoa. Right. He's talking, uh, use an example of a little child and all of a sudden it like it flips and he's saying some things that you're like, whoa, this is serious. And I think part of it is he's trying to warn us. He's trying to speak to it kind of like the guy on the beach. Like you need to get in here now. And that's part of what Jesus is doing here as he talks about the seriousness of temptation and of sin and hell and where that leads and all those things. And so if you've been with us, we're going to look at this passage today, but if you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through the Gospels chronologically, uh, kind of looking at the timeline of Jesus's ministry. We are now in the third year of his ministry. Jesus's earthly ministry roughly breaks down into three years. Year three becomes we've kind of the heading we've put on it is the year of opposition. Because everywhere he goes, people are kind of questioning him, and he, he's really upset some of the religious leaders. They're afraid of him in a lot of ways, that he's going to strip them of their own power, and there's a lot of dynamics going on. But he's also, what you see in this third year is he continues to speak the truth, and he becomes very bold. And when they come against him, he speaks directly back. And here today, you're going to see that boldness in the way he's talking and what he's saying here. And he's going to talk about a lot of things that, to be quite honestly, we don't usually talk about in our culture. And he's going to say a lot of things very directly that we need to hear, but could be very hard. And so I think it was probably hard for some of the people there to hear it, but it's hard for us to hear some of the things he says here. 
And so to really understand what Jesus is saying, there's a couple things that we need to think about. First, there's a foundational truth that's kind of underneath this text that we need to at least kind of recall the mind and think about a little bit. And so I want to do that first. There's a foundational truth that kind of that all of what Jesus is saying springs out of that we really need to think about. So first, I want us to consider that. Secondly, as we look at this text, I want us to see the seriousness of sin that Jesus is talking about. And then lastly, how he says to address it. Right. So a foundational truth. That's really important to what he's saying here. Secondly, what he says here about the seriousness of sin. And then lastly, how he tells us to address it. And so let's start with kind of the foundational truth that we really need to consider that's underneath what Jesus is saying here to really understand what he's talking about. And I think that truth that we need to stop and consider for just a minute is the holiness of God. It's a great big idea that's throughout scripture and it's all through the Bible. It's never mentioned directly here But it's holding up pretty much everything that Jesus is saying and the directness with which he's speaking. And so when we start to think about the holiness of God, that's a huge category for it to be a sub point in this sermon for just a few minutes. And so I just want to summarize kind of big picture just so you kind of have it in the forefront of your mind as we consider what Jesus is saying. And so I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the Gospel Coalition we as a church are part of the Gospel Coalition. They have a website called the Gospel Coalition. You can go to lots of great resources there. Lots of great teaching and and, uh, uh, different articles and sermons and all kinds of stuff. And so I would encourage you to look there. There's a lot of great resources. They do a lot of good book reviews and podcasts and all kinds of things. And so I would encourage you to look there. But I was reading an article from the Gospel Coalition this week as I was thinking about these things. And it was helpful in the way they summarized. And so Richard Lentz wrote this article and he gave this definition about the holiness of God. And it's two parts, kind of in the way he says it, but he says the first part is the holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God. That's the first part. But then the second part, and the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. Right? So the first part is that God is absolutely, perfectly, morally pure in every way. And I want you just to consider that for just a second, what that means. That God is perfect in all ways and all goodness comes from him. Absolute pure in every way. Pure in every sense of morality that we can think of. That God is perfectly merciful. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly just. All of these characteristics that are in God are without flaw in any way and perfect in all ways. And because he is the source of all things, he's the creator and sustainer of all things and he is the one in which everything springs from goodness comes from god it begins and ends with him it starts with him he is the very source and standard of goodness and it's permanent right moral goodness what is true what is good what is right is absolute eternal and everlasting because it's rooted in the eternal and everlasting god and that's absolute And there's no way around that because of who God is. And that's at the very heart of who he is. And all of it springs forth from him. And so when we start to talk about God's holiness, we're talking about this absolute moral purity of who he is. He creates us then in his image, but in creating us in his image, we are not God. We are less than God, but we are made in his image. And as created in his image, He gives us the ability to have real relationships, to think, to rationalize, to to come to uh, relationships 
but he also gives us the ability to make real choices with real consequences. And if you know the story of the Bible and you know the story of human history, we quickly take that real choice with real consequences and we choose to rebel against God and the world he created. We choose to ignore God and say, we've got this, we can do this on our own. And as soon as we do, as soon as we make that choice and our first ancestors made that choice and ever since every single one of us has made that choice over and over and over again, God is holy and we are not. And that's the second part of the definition, the way Richard Lentz explains it here. The absolute moral distance between God and his human creation. Us as people, even though we are made in his image, And even though we have a conscience and we know good from evil and we know some of these things, it has now been distorted because we have chosen to rebel against him. And we are now polluted in that way. We are no longer pure in the way that God is pure. We are infinitely less than he is. And we're not pure in the way he is pure. We are not holy in the way that he is holy. We are so far removed from that. And so there is now an absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. And that's every single one of us. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has rebelled against God and the world he created. And we've done it over and over and over again. And so when we start to think about the holiness of God, it divides us from him. Now, even as we become believers, right? He says, well, the Bible tells us to be holy for I am holy and to follow him and that we're to pursue holiness in our life. And that's true. We can start to have some of those things and the fruit of that in our life. But even when that is the case, our holiness is completely dependent and due to God and his grace. The only way that we can be holy is because God is holy and he is at work within us. And it's what he does for us and what he's doing in us. And that's the only way in which there can ever be holiness in our lives as we seek to follow him. But it's important for us to get that kind of important distinction there. Big picture. But now I want you to think about how that plays out in our life, right? If this is true, that God is holy and we are not in our sinfulness that is in us, what often happens is even in our understanding, and I count all of us, I'm here with you. I'm trying to use words to explain the holiness of God, a holiness that I can't fully comprehend because of my sinfulness. And that's true for all of us. We distort the holiness of God because of the finiteness of who we are as created beings, but also because of the sinfulness, our sinful nature. And so what ends up happening is we warp the view of God's holiness to fit our sin. We try to put it in palatable terms that we can kind of understand, but we can't fully understand. And so what we end up doing when we talk about God's holiness is we're missing it. I I just freely admit right here, when I'm explaining and trying to put it into words, the absolute holiness of God, I will not do it justice. I cannot. I don't fully understand it completely because of the sinfulness of my own heart and the way in which we can distort it. And so what happens a lot of times when we start to talk about the holiness of God or who God is, or we think about God in our culture, uh, we end up distorting what God is like. And we do that because of our sinfulness and we don't really understand the fullness of God's holiness. There's a whole lot of examples that we could go to, but I want to give you just one to think about. Oftentimes in our culture, we talk about God as being love. God is love. And so what we do in our culture is we kind of have that in a vague sense in our mind. And we say, well, God is love and God is loving. Or we say God is love. And what we mean when we say that is God is only love. Right? That God is love 
exclusively and nothing else. And that's who he is. And that's what it looks like. And then we take our broken, sinful conceptions of what love is. And we have this kind of sentimentality that just affirms everything. And that's what loving is. And that's what our culture kind of talks about because we live in a pluralistic kind of relativistic culture. And so everything is okay and everything is right and God is love. And so God affirms you in that. And we end up with this view of God that looks nothing like God. God is love. He's perfect love and he is loving. But God is also perfect mercy and he's perfect justice. He's perfectly morally pure in every way. And what happens is we overemphasize some parts and miss others. If God is perfectly loving, then God always speaks the truth. And that's true. God's never wrong. He never says anything that's untruthful. He doesn't deceive. He tells you exactly how it is. And so sometimes when we go, yeah, yeah, but God is love and he he accepts everybody just as they are. And we say these kind of these cliches that take parts of scripture and leave out other parts. And we end up warping the picture of what God's holiness looks like. But God, who is perfect in every way, who is truly holy, is always going to speak the truth. And truly loving is not affirming everything, but it's telling you when you're wrong, right? If if you have children, you know this, right? I mean, you know this innately. And I'd even say, um, Jesus' words in Matthew 7 come to mind. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Even me as a broken, sinful man, love my children. And I want what's best for them. And I know that loving them well is oftentimes telling them no. Or correcting them. Or helping them to see things as they actually are. And that is loving. Loving is not just allowing them to do whatever they want and affirming them in that. I have this vivid picture in my mind of Asher as a very little boy, like maybe two years old, maybe three. I think Jed was a baby, newborn baby in the car. Asher gets out of the car. We're going to go in the store and he takes off running in the parking lot. So excited to go in whatever store we're going in. I don't remember. And I take a, I run after him and grab him. And I look at him in the face and don't you ever run away from me in the parking lot like that. And I said, do you see these cars? And he's going, yeah. And I said, they can't see you. You're this tall. You run across the parking lot and they back out and run you over. You could get killed. And I was so intense, you know, like telling them, like, don't ever do that. And it's not because I'm unloving. It's because I love them that I'm telling them that. Don't you ever do that. The last thing I want is for you to ever get hurt. And so sometimes when we misrepresent who God is, And we say, well, God's loving and he's only loving. But God is also truth. And he's perfectly morally pure in every way. In fact, sometimes in our culture, we miss the part that God's wrath, his righteous indignation, his righteous anger is of that all that is evil is born out of his love. Because he's perfect in every way, he has to be against the things that are not good. And our culture wants to say, no, no, God of wrath, that's the Old Testament, and that's not what God's like, and now he's all loving and it's all love, and that is a lie. God is both, and he's both perfectly in balance. He is always perfectly angry at evil because he's good, 
right? If you think about it, if you are apathetic to evil in the world, that is not good. It's not loving. You know that to be true. And so God's wrath is actually born out of his love. They're not opposites that are fighting it out. They actually go perfectly together. I remember years ago working with Jericho House guys. Jericho House is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation, one-year program for guys. And I heard this over and over. Guys would say, my family's so mad at me. I've made such a mess and they're so angry with me. And I'd look at them and say, they're not angry with you. It's because they love you that you're here. They want what's best for you. If they didn't love you and they didn't care, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be helping you go through this. It's precisely because they love you and they hate this disease. They hate this addiction in your life and what it's doing. And it's because they love you that they hate this, that they don't want this for you. And that's, that's what's true. That's true of God and his wrath. His righteous anger against all that is evil. God's wrath is born out of his love. God cannot stand by and, and be uh, indifferent or apathetic to evil. Or he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be perfectly morally pure in every way. Those things have to go together. And so I just want you to have that in your mind as you think about what Jesus is saying. What he's calling us to in the, the seriousness of what he says here in this text. And so let's look at it together. Look at what he says here in Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to consider the seriousness of sin and what he's talking about here. And so we have here someone asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven in verse 1? And he called to him a child and he put him in his midst. And he begins to talk about this child and he points to the child and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm going to come back to that. But they're asking the question about who's the greatest. And he's pointing to a childlike faith with great humility. And he's talking about this is who's greatest. But then all of a sudden he kind of switches. All of a sudden he seems to go into a a little different uh, take on this or kind of making a secondary point that's really important. He says, verse five, but whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. You go, whoa, that changed pretty quick, right? You should should have a childlike faith and humility like this child. And if you cause one of them to sin, it'd be better for you to be drowned in the sea. And you go, whoa, where'd that come from? That got intense real fast. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look at what he says in verse 7, 8, and 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so Jesus gets real direct real quick. It would be better for you to be drowned than to lead others to sin. 
It'd be better for you to cut off your hand or your foot than to have it lead you into sin. It'd be better for you to gouge out your eyes. I can't really think of a better analogy to expound on what he's saying. It's pretty intense. Right? This is how he sees sin and where it leads. And rip out your eye if you have to, to go to war with sin in your life. And so you see real quickly the seriousness of sin, I think, just by his words that he uses. My question that I want us to consider is why does he get so intense so quickly? Why such graphic illustrations about the evilness of sin? And the first thing I would say to you is kind of what he says there, and I think it flows out of what he's saying in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin. Here he is looking at children and kind of, Uh, their simplicity of the way they see things. And he says, you come in and you begin to lead them astray. It would be better for you to be drowned. Because Jesus knows that when you turn to sin and you ignore God in the world he created, it robs you of what you were created for. It robs you of your best. And remember, God is holy. He is perfect love. Absolute shining moral purity god has to be for your best or he wouldn't be god he has to want what is absolutely best for you and so when he says you lead one of these little ones astray you are taking them into something that is not their best and it would be better for you to be drowned than to do that right you start to get a sense of god's holiness his divine hatred for sin and that which is evil but at the same time, his, his care and love for us that he wants our very best. And so the first thing I think when you start to think about why he speaks in such harsh terms, in such direct manner here, is because it robs you of what you're created for. You're created to know and to love God. And then to live out of that love and love others. And when you turn from that, you're settling from something that is so far less than what you're created for. And oftentimes as you turn from that and you start to embrace other things or go against what God tells you, the ends are catastrophic. And so I I can imagine Jesus looking at these little children and having such a great love for them and wanting their best and then saying, don't you dare lead them astray. That's born out of God's holiness, out of his goodness, of who he is. But then the second thing he says about the seriousness of sin, you see it in both 8 and 9, where he starts to talk about cutting off your hand or feet, gouging out your eyes. He says, because it would be better for you to do that than to be thrown into the eternal fire in verse 8. Or verse 9, it would be better for you to do that than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. In our culture, we don't like this. We usually just kind of skim past it. Grace and love and Jesus' forgiveness. And we kind of ignore the flip side of that coin. That if you reject God and you reject what he's doing for you, the wrath of God remains on you because you are not holy. The Bible says this over and over and over and over again. That in our sinfulness, we are separated from God. That he is holy and we are not holy. And oftentimes we just ignore the seriousness of sin and what it says about hell. 
But I want to remind you, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And so when people say, well, the wrath of God and those things are Old Testament and Jesus is all love and roses and forgiveness and that's it, which he is, he is forgiveness and he is perfect grace and he is perfect humility and he is pursuing us and he is doing all those things, but he also talks about hell a lot. And he warns us about the seriousness of what he's saying here. And so what does he mean here when he says that in verse 8 about being thrown into the eternal fire? Verse 9 He talks about being thrown into the hell of fire. What is he talking about? And I think if you just read, right, you just read what he says and the way in which he's saying it. He's saying if you are not fighting against your sin, that this is the ends, right? He's giving you a a framework in which you should be fighting against your sin in your life and fighting for holiness. And if none of that's happening in your life, then the ends of that is hell. Now, I want us to be clear on what that means. Because you can hear that and you can read that and you go, well, if I do too many bad things, then I go to hell. If I don't do enough good or my bad outweighs my good or I haven't tried hard hard enough, then I end up in hell. And that's what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. That's not what the Bible says. It's not the way in which it talks about hell. The answer is that every single one of us has sinned. And because of the holiness of God, there's an absolute moral distance between God and us. Right now, as you sit, apart from Jesus in your life, apart from transferring your trust to Jesus in your life, all of us, there is a chasm that we can never cross because God is perfectly, absolutely morally pure. And we are not. And so we think of it as like, well, if I do some good things or I read it in those terms, if you read it in those terms, that if I do enough good things, then God will accept me. You're looking at it from your sinful view and you can't see the holiness of God. Because if God is absolutely morally pure, perfect in every way, you can never do enough to get there ever. And that's every single one of us. In fact, the Bible says that over and over again. That it's only through faith in what Jesus does for us that we can ever be redeemed. Listen to what it says in John chapter 3. And listen closely. John chapter 3, verse 36. This is after Jesus and Nicodemus. We looked at this last year. They have this discussion. And then there's kind of some teaching on that. And we get to the end. It's kind of a summary of what's happening and what's being said there. And listen to what it says in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son, talking about Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I want you to listen carefully to what it says, because I think it makes sense out of what Jesus is saying here about going to war with your sin and fighting against it and how we can easily start to think that it's our works. Or if I do enough things, then I get to go to heaven. If I don't do enough things, then I don't get to go to heaven. But listen to what it says in John three, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Right? By grace, through faith, you put your trust in Jesus and you have eternal life. But then the very next thing he says, but whoever does not obey shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It sounds like works. Right? Put your faith in Jesus and you have eternal life. But if you don't obey, it's using them interchangeably, right? So what does that mean? What the Bible teaches and what it tells us is that you are saved by grace through faith in what Jesus does for you. You can't do it. 
So Jesus has come to do it for you. He lives this life perfectly sinless in every way. And he comes to the end of his life and he deserves all the blessings that come with keeping all of God's laws perfectly. And he says, I will become a curse for you. I will take your sin upon myself and I will pay for it. And I will give you the blessings of my perfect life by grace through faith. That's how you're saved. So what part does works play? Because John 3 says that if you don't obey the son, you shall not see life. Or Jesus is talking here about if you don't go to war with your sin in your life, the ends of that is hell. Sounds like works. But what the Bible says is when you're saved by grace through faith and you transfer your trust to Jesus, the spirit comes and lives in and with you and begins to change you. Your works are evidence that you believe and you've put your faith and you've transferred it to Jesus. The works don't save you. You understand why? Because God is holy and you can never do enough. You can never do enough in and of yourself. That's why we need Jesus and his righteousness given to us. And when we get it, God sees us as perfectly holy in Jesus. And then he begins to work that out in our lives. And as he does, you now want to go to war with your flesh. When you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you then want your life to change. I don't want to ignore God in the ways in which he's calling me to live. I want to transfer my trust to Jesus. I want to transfer my trust that I'm saved and that I am his. But I also want to transfer my trust in the way I live today and the way I live tomorrow. I want to be quick to say, God, I blew it here. Forgive me. I don't want this in my life. And that's what he's talking about here. Be willing to cut your hand off if you need to. If you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that's what it begins to look like in your life. Now, when I say that, whenever we really start to talk about what the Bible says, people will go, well, oh, no. Maybe I'm not a Christian. I'm not perfect and I'm not cutting my hand off and I'm not going to war with my sin in that way. Right? I look around the room. I think everybody has both hands, right? So what does that mean? And so people, maybe you have that question. Maybe you hear that and you go, well, that's maybe me. I'm struggling with that. Am I really going to war with my flesh? Am I really seeking to be obedient to Jesus in every area of your life? And so I've had people through the years come to me and go, I don't know that I'm a believer. And I'm going to tell you, if you're asking that question, if you're searching your mind right now and you're thinking about the things where you failed and you're going, oh no, and conviction is coming, it's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Right now, he's convicting you of sin. And he's reminding you that Jesus has paid for it. Right? The conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the feeling of guilt and shame, that's the work of the devil. It's the work of demons. You'll never be good enough. You can never make it. God can never forgive you. The Spirit comes and convicts you of your sin and it shows you so that it can point you to Jesus and what he's done for you and say that's been taken care of. And so I would just say to you, if you're struggling with the areas where you've fallen short, 
but you are struggling with it, that's evidence of God's grace in your life. Be reminded that he's at work, that he's not done with you. The area where it gets scary when people ask that question is you go, no, I'm good. I've arrived. I'm a really good person, and I'm quite sure that God's pleased with me in everything I do, and there's no conviction for sin, right? Or, or, you're, or you're not good at all, which is true of all of us. None of us have arrived. You've got a whole bunch of mess in your life, and you don't care, and there's no conviction. The Bible warns you of that over and over again. That's not to say that your works save you, but there is evidence in your life that you are Jesus when you start to have that conviction and God begins to change you. And the Bible says that over and over and over again. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so it's so important that we understand the seriousness of what he's saying. See, apart from Jesus, apart from transferring your trust in him, right? that's what John Three says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. You're forgiven. You're his. You have his righteousness. But those that don't obey, those that have no fruit in their life, those that are not following him in any way, it says the wrath of God remains on him because God is holy. And he is good in every way. And the only way out from under that is by what Jesus does for us. So how do we address that? Two things that it tells us here, and we'll end with that. Two things that he says. The first thing, go back to the very first way in which he addresses the children that are there. He uses them as the example. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so he points us to a childlike faith. To humility, right? Uh, remember when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's pointing us to that picture. Poor in spirit is having this humility of recognizing that you can't do it. That in and of yourself, you can never do enough. Right? What does a childlike faith look like? I was thinking about this with my boys when they were little. Right? They ask you a question, and you tell them, and they go, Okay. And they go running off, and that's it, right? Now they're teenagers, and they think they know everything, and it doesn't go quite like that anymore. But that's the way it used to be. I, I won't throw my own kids under the bus. I'll, I'll talk about me. I remember that. I remember with my dad telling me stuff and just being like, he knows everything. This is amazing. And I vividly remember one day being in the back of the car with my brother Jed. And my dad's talking about deer and the way they... the their sense and the wind and all this stuff. And Jed looks at me and I look at him. And I'm like, do you think he knows what he's talking about? I'm like, I don't think he has a clue. I think he's just making this up. And there we are as teenagers sitting in the back being like, I don't think he knows that much. And we're kind of like, you know. And somewhere along the way, you start to think you know more than you know. We didn't know. We had no idea if he was right. But we were arrogant enough to believe that maybe we were right and he was wrong. And isn't that what we do with God? He clearly tells us what is true. And then we go, yeah, but my circumstances in my life, and maybe you don't know. You know, the funny thing that whatever it was he was talking about, I don't remember exactly, something with deer and the way they smell and scent and something. A year or so later, I remember watching uh, like Discovery Channel and they were talking about deer and everything he said was right. 
And I remember being really convicted of like, oh, man, we thought he didn't know what he's talking about. He does know what he's talking about. And we do the same thing all the time. What God tells us is true. And he says, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And he said, it's like this child. The one who hears my word and goes, yes. The one who humbles himself and goes, God, when you are saying things that don't align with how I'm feeling, I'm going to go with what you say. When my circumstances push in and I go, I don't know how this works or how this can be, I'm going to continue to trust you in humility. And so you want to go to war with your sin, you let God's word stand over you and you take steps of obedience of what he says over how you feel in the moment or how your circumstances want to lead you. Even when the world goes, that's insane to follow what God says in his word and you go, no, I'm going to go with God. I'm going to have a childlike faith with great humility that I'm going to trust him. Second thing. When you start to think about the seriousness of sin and what you do. When Jesus says here about the millstone around your neck, cutting off your hand or your feet or gouging out your eyes. The only way I can say that is you go to war with the flesh. You go to war with the things in your life that are leading you away from God. I'm not going to tell you to cut off your hand. I'm going to tell you mutilation. I don't know that Jesus is literally saying, go cut off your hand. But I'm going to tell you something real close. You might need to get rid of your phone. That might be what you, you might need to have a flip phone. If your phone and that thing being in your pocket and at your beck and call at every moment in your life is leading you to sin, then get rid of it. And I'm telling you, I say that and people go, well, that doesn't work. I need that for my job and I have to have my email and I have to have all. No, you don't. You could live without it if you had to. And if we're taking seriously what Jesus is saying and it's causing you to sin in your life, whatever that looks like, whatever that temptation is, having that always with you, get rid of it. And the reason is real simple. You know, we sing uh, how deep the Father's love here quite often. And I don't know if you've ever noticed the line in how deep the Father's love. It says, it was my sin that held him there. It's talking about Jesus on the cross. And the reason that he is on the cross is to bear the wrath of God on your behalf and mine and all those that put their faith in him. And that's, that's why Jesus died. That's why it came to live the life that you haven't lived, to die the death that you deserve. To bear the wrath of God in your place. And so when we start to understand what it is that Jesus has done and how God can be perfectly holy, that is perfectly morally pure in every way, and yet be reconciled to us as sinful people, the answer is Jesus and what he does on the cross. And so when Jesus is saying here, gouge your eye out or cut your hand off, that makes perfect sense when you start to put it in the terms of what it is that Jesus was willing to do for us. That he would lay down his life, that he would, he who knew no sin would become sin on your behalf and bear the wrath of God in your place. We can laugh at like, well, maybe you need to get rid of your phone. 
But when you place it in those terms, when you place it in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that makes perfect sense. To seek holiness. To really trust him in every area of your life. And so sometimes in the weakness of our flesh, we go, I have the freedom to do these things and have these things, but you know what? I don't need it right now. And Jesus is worth it. And I want to honor him with everything that I do and everything that I am. And so I would just ask you as we end, we're talking about the seriousness of sin and what do you do about it? Have a childlike faith with great humility, trusting Jesus in everything, but then ask him to show you what that looks like. And I'm going to warn you, when you ask him to show you what it looks like, he's going to reveal things in your heart and be ready to be obedient. Be ready to trust him in those areas. He is perfectly holy in every way, but that means he is perfectly loving. And the things that he reveals to you are for your best. Precisely because he's holy. Precisely because he loves you. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious truth of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that we would see afresh today the sacrifice of what you've done on our behalf. What it cost you to bring us into this relationship that we were created for, to restore us. This great chasm that exists because of our sin and how holy you are, but that you come and you make a way that we can be restored to that relationship. I pray that we would see that afresh today, but I also pray that you would show us what it looks like to pursue holiness in our lives. That we would lay down the things that take us from trusting you. That we'd make steps of obedience. That we continue to seek to follow you in every area of our lives. And that we would, as we do, I pray that you would remind us that it's not the way in which we are saved. But it's because we want to trust you in all ways and what you've done for us and who we are in you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.